0: Yes, there we go, okay, so uh, I'm sure that there are many many questions uh, for Daryl and uh, let's open the floor, so questions, comments on the back of Daryl's lecture, disagreements, corroboration, not so much disagreement, Alex.
1: Um, uh, I first first things first I thought it was like really a really really good presentation. I'd study history and I'm familiar with Chinese history, especially prior to the 15th century. I'm familiar with Western history and I would more or less not find any disagreement. Um, but only on my technical technical details. Um, the um, for instance, I mean, I've been doing a course at the LSC on uh, international institutions. One of them is on the Bretton Woods system, uh, fifty-one to seventy-one. They conclude the same thing that the Americans broke it by going to war. Um, uh, another interesting thing about the Opium Wars, and I'll be, I'll be, by the way, my grandfather was also a historian, and he hated the British. He thought they were evil. I think they're evil too. It's great and another bit about the opium wars that I found out when I was doing my own research um, when I was an undergrad um, in the British press during the 1840s um, the British press would slam the Chinese for not being pro-free trade so, so and, and that's how they sort of justified it to the public going to war because they wouldn't sell them there Good. It's, uh so I mean you're, you're entirely correct but I just I guess to point out a criticism um, you said that real business or business cycles came into existence after 1600, so after a years when, when banking in England presumably becomes important. Um, but does this have anything to do with Fisher's um, price revolutions? Because if there's price revolutions that start, on, I think it's 1200 or so, then there's no sort of central banks, but there is a sort of something driving. This sort of dynamic boom and bust kind of situation, where you have an increase in prices and then they fall again, and they're not—they're periodic. Sure, that's a—that's a problematic. That's a
2: problematic question. Fisher deals with this in his book, and he said there have been many people who've come to the table about this issue, trying to explain it in their own way to Khondratyov people, people on demographics, population growth, many different, they've all brought their discipline to the table on this reoccurring, you know, this stability, a wave of rising prices and a collapse of waving prices. And he said, no one has the piece on it. He, and he, and he, he, he doesn't, he, he himself comes to no conclusion. He said, it's not my part to explain why this happens, only to note that it does. And and he leaves it at that. You know, he he's just he's got the data. He brings it in, and it's very it's just research. But you, you you're exactly right. There is, there is there's see there's something, not spooky, about cycles. There's something. I mean, Sandeep is he's from India. As much as he will speak on behalf of the crown in this. <laughs> all right? And this, this culture has a deep understanding of historical cycles, far beyond ours. I mean, the Mayan cycle is like a blip in the yugas and the Indian cycles, all right? And there's really sort of no explanation, and it may not be true, or it may be true, but there's always this sense that we, as sentient beings, are part of something that is bigger than us. One of the things that I believe is that one of the things that Western... Western consciousness has done of late, is that our intellect, our ground of being is focused in who we think we are, all right, and that's just who we think we are, but we, but we, we have such agreement on it that we don't question any other way, and it's these things like this, it's things like this, it's things like these things that come in and there's no explanation, all right? Or, if there is an explanation, we have not yet found it. And that's what I'm going to say, There, there I'm sure there is an explanation, we just haven't found it. And you know, it's, it's, it, at a certain point, you live with mystery. You know, and and Fisher notes this. He said, "I have no idea why these things happen. Greater minds than me have stepped in and tried to explain the periodic, and they tried to bring their discipline to the table to to measure it and explain. You know why this thing happened, why this thing happened." He says, "You know, he says that's not my point. I just want to point out that this happens like that." Um, Just as a side note, I
1: just did a little bit of homework really quick uh, eh.net, economic history services like net it's like one of my favorite websites um, and they publish a journal they're like the the big, the big boys of course they have a review on the book and there's a gentleman over here uh, I don't know his credentials his name is John Monroe um, I don't um, he basically slams his book for being uh, not being mathematically rigorous and uh, for being for being um, a uh, yeah, no, it's a pretty weak criticism, mm. but, um, but 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 I think I think it's justifiable because the only thing is measuring this kind of stuff is the most controversial part. There's a lot of um, filling in the gap when you have missing observations, and historians usually do this. So um, I'm not an expert on it because I didn't manage to do long-run economic growth at the LSE, so I'm not an authoritative person. But I'm very interested, and I can actually find something like tangible um, uh, the next time around. Um, Another thing I was going to mention is that you meant you talked about bankers and how bankers are evil in the sense that they don't—they just make money by lending out money. I am guilty
2: are, of a broad brush. You are <laughs> now.
1: You already, but you already know where I'm going. I with understand. This. It's a, a, a bank that is char- has a chartered monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> is different from a, from a risk-taking institution that's subject sure. to market forces. to market forces. Right, uh, in, in, a, in a free yeah. market model, sure. right? Um, but it's just something I want to mention. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to... Nobody raised their hands, I'm just going to keep on rambling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. um, uh, you also mentioned the word capitalism, and how, basically, uh, I per- I personally have thrown out the word altogether because it's too loaded, but you're entirely correct that with the fall of communism, capitalism, this very vague term, has somehow come into prominence and it's been used to justify a new economic order that somehow revolves around the US. Um, for instance, one of the things that um, I studied was the role of the World Bank and the IMF and, and growth in the like late, la- later 20th century. One of the things that I noticed is that actually I think the World Bank is an agent of Wall Street because they get to, told what to do by the Treasury and there's one very controversial academic, his name is Robert Wade, who talks a lot about this kind of stuff, and the example of Stieglitz, and another economist, an Indian guy who ran the World Bank afterwards, both pressured by the Treasury to basically um, further Wall Street interests. Because there's two kinds of versions of capitalism. There's the free markets, global capital circulating as fast as the quick, and we get the most efficient outcome, and we need to elevate the status of the of the poorest people in society and bring them up to speed, basically, so we can guarantee a, a better standard of living for everyone. And Wall Street are in favor of the former policy, of course, because it's in our own interest. Uh, I want to
2: add something here because you you brought it about Bretton Woods and, and the World Bank. There was a uh, Bernard Baruch was there at at Bretton Woods, and and when they put that system together, Bernard Baruch turned to somebody and said, "This is wonderful." If we get this in place, we'll be able to buy up the world's commodities on the cheap. Yeah. That's how he saw it. He saw it as a mechanism whereby they could do that. And you're right in the sense that they've been at the hand of the U.S. all along. That agenda was there in the beginning. All right, Maynard Keynes tried to come in with their bank core. And i, I got to say, the British are a lot fairer. They're not always fair. When push comes to shove, none of us are. All right, but they do have this thing about fair. You shouldn't scream during tennis matches when the guy's serving. It's wrong. Uh-huh. All right, it's a game of skill. Uh-huh. All right, and and the British I, and I'm not. I don't know if Keynes's thing was fairer than the IMF World Bank version put forth by the U.S. But I know it was probably fairer.
0: Rudy had a. A question or comment?
2: Uh, no. No. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. You're speechless. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you want to comment, I think Daryl's three legs are very, uh, very. Um, yeah, you, you can see that, and it's sort of a parallel to the three legs of the gold standard, that the stable three-legged stool
1: with your gold bonds and bills, and the three
2: legs—the psychological aspect where. You can't separate money from people. You know. So, yeah, if you can grow it, if you can keep it under control. I mean, some, some guy said, I think it was Alan Greenspan, that all we have to do is handle paper as if it was gold, as if being where it falls apart. Mm-hmm. It's not. Rudy, yes, I'd I, I like to add a caveat to what you just said. Many bankers believe it is quite possible to separate money from people. <laughs>
0: From the other people, and bring it to these people. <laughs> um. Any any more questions, comments? Uh, Alex?
1: Um, you, I was wondering, what, how would you get all this information out of the only paper that I know about money on China it is the Gordon Tulloch paper published in
2: 1956. There's uh, <laughs> this incredible piece of paper, work, and you know there's a tremendous amount of information out there, you know. And I was just lucky to run across the professor very early. I I, I tell this story about you, and uh, I had run. I was trying to read as much as I could about gold, and I, I ran across your name, and I, I I let it go. One, it was foreign. Two, the name of the article was. I, I didn't get a handle on it. And something made me come back. And I hit that link, and I read it, and I went, my God, this guy understands money. All right? And I think that's sort of the guidance of where this information comes. But to answer your question, this, there's a, a book, and it's not even, you can only buy it on, uh, from Ralph, basically. It's called um, Fiat Money, The History of Our Currency. All right? And his his name is Ralph T. Foster. He's a coin dealer from Berkeley. And what he did was this. Quite ingenious. You know, for those of you who have gone to school, and you'll know this too, that graduate students are sort of the the cows that professors can milk in their research, all right? And they're all over Berkeley. I mean, they're littered. They're all over Berkeley, all right? And this is where Ralph was a, a coin dealer, all right? And he decided, this was genius, he decided to hire graduate students to research fiat money, all right? That one this was back in the 70s and 80s and like that. So he said, for really a modest sum of money, because <laughs> universities don't pay graduate students very much, all right, and a few meals here and there, he was able to get, to pick their brains. He said they would get books from Sweden. I mean, you know, these are, you know, and they talk about all this kind of stuff. So all, he, he basically collated all these grad students writing this stuff. They went to the, they, they put as much work into his project as they did on their thesis. All right. Now, why I got the book was this. I was reading John Williams' Shadow Stats. And he, rec- in his paper, he recommended one book Ralph had already gotten a hold of me, and he said, you should read my book. A lot of people try and get me to read what they want me to read, all right? And you can't filter. You've got to filter. And when I saw that John Williams recommended it, I went out and got that book. And it's stunning. It, it really is. That's where I got the history. And that's why I knew I could bring it into this crowd, because I know this crowd is formidable. In terms of in terms of their knowledge base, you know, I I figured that if things got real tough in the question and answer period, I could defer to Sandeep, you know, <laughs> to answer any questions and you know because he does it so well, but he was my backup plan. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, excellent. Thanks. I'll look it
1: up for
0: sure. Uh, any any more questions or uh, or comments? I I've got I've got a a question though. Um, Are you speaking for the king or
2: yourself? For
0: for myself. (laughs) Um, What what, what do you think is going to happen uh, to the standard of living in the West from here on?
2: You know, it's going... Martha and I have a map on our wall, all right? And and we got it from the... uh, It's a French think tank. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you could get... You know, it's one of those... I I can't even pronounce their name... But they made a map of the world, alright? And the map was based upon where the countries, who were the countries that are going to be most affected by the collapse. Alright? And and then they color-coded. Alright? Now, the ones that were least affected were countries like Mali, alright, sub-Saharan Africa, alright? Because they're already living at a certain level and they're gonna, you know, the collapse is not gonna take them down much further. They they live a simpler life that's not so much based on technology, all right? And the countries that were going to get hit the worst were the countries that we're from, all right? The, the, The countries that have... But you see, I think we have a role here. And you have a role. And that's why we're here. Everybody has come here because of this man. All right. Everybody has come here because there's a voice of, of, of reason, of seeing something and saying there's something wrong. And the people in this room aren't attached to the old model. We have very different degrees of perhaps about what the old model was, about what's going to happen. All right? But it is going to be big. All right, It's going to be big. And this map is fascinating because they went through every country and they had a list of factors which determined how the shift was gonna happen. Be that as it may, because that's a country by country basis, Um, there was a paper by a person, are you familiar with Dmitry Orlov? Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful paper. Mm -hmm. Wonderful man, okay? Mm -hmm. And Dmitry was an engineer, all right? And much of what we see is because of our point of view and our experience and our basis, all right? Dmitry was born in Russia, and he's an engineer, and he was there during the collapse after the 90s, went, I mean, went down, all right? And he saw it, all right? And he lived through it, and then he moved to the United States, all right? So he's working here, he's got his job and doing like that, and he looked around the United States and he goes, holy smokes, what happened in Russia is going to happen here, all right? And his view of what happened in Russia is very different than our view of what happened in Russia. Dmitry's view of what happened in Russia is they were just simply living beyond their means. Mm. The oil wealth had come in. Now, granted, they had a state-run economy that was highly inefficient, rather than a market economy. It had lots of glitches in the system. But the truth of the matter is that Russian oil had raised these people from, really, poverty into, TVs and you know they were they were doing better. You know, they all felt better because it's all relative. There are people in, in in on the Upper East Side that when they fall, they're gonna go to a level that we're not at. And they're gonna be horrified. I mean, where's their nanny? You know, what are they gonna do? You know, they're gonna be horrified. We're going, God, if I can live like that, man, that'd be cool. All right? Well, Dmitri said the Russians. When that oil, when all of a sudden, Norway, when Norway came online, it just took the legs out from under Russia, and they were sunk, all right, and they dropped like rocks, all right, and he said, it was really cultural cataclysm on a level that we have never seen before, and he came to the United States, and he said, this is going to happen here, and he gave a few recommendations, all right, he said, the first you're going to see is a problem with the financial institutions which we've seen, all right? And the latest step in the financial institutions is the taking on of debt by the central banks. This is very recent. The ECB happened, they just took it on in starting December and January. They're over, they're, they're, they're balanced, you know, they fought to try and keep their balance sheet clean. They had to keep their system going, so they took on the bad debt of the system. The Fed did this since 2008. I can guarantee you that neither central bank wanted to have their balance sheet like it is now. They're, they've been forced to do it. So he said, "You're going to see the closures of financial. We're, we're, we're going to see it, but in a different way than it happened in the 1930s." Then he said, "You're going to see the problem with with commercial entities. You're going to see stores that you that you are familiar with closed down. You're going to see supply lines." get screwed up. You're gonna see a disintegration of that. Then he said you're gonna see social collapse. Standard of living is gonna fall. All right, now he said where the danger comes in is this, is cultural collapse. This is where he says it gets scary. All right, when cultural collapse happens. All right, because this is something that we're not used to, It's it's a invisible fabric that we share, all right? And that is very, very destructive. And Dimitri said, he said, listen, it's going to happen. He said, and his parity was with, we're going to have to, we're going to survive in groups. He said, is we're going to survive as whole, as a whole, as a collective. All right? And it's a collective that we have, we just, we don't know. We don't know our neighbors. Money has allowed us to isolate ourselves from each other. You know, it really has. It's, it's, you know, that simpler, the small town where everybody knew each other, there was a basis. You knew what, who was who and who you can go to help. As we got more independent, we, we needed less from each other, all right? The, 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 the thing that I see happen is, one, we are going to experience a collapse, but I do not believe, I, I believe like that Fisher is, that it's going to come into something better. My, my model for this thing is really... Um, it's really uh, Buckminster Fuller, all right? <coughs> and, and Bucky said in, his, in 1981, in his last book, Critical Path, he said, he, he entitled the foreword, the collapse of the world's power structures. He didn't say the collapse of power, and the, the collapse of capitalism. He says the, the twilight of the world's power structures, all right? Twilight. The twilight of the world's power structures. Right. That's how he started the preface. And in the first paragraph, Bucky said, mankind, this is 1981, he died a year later, mankind is entering a period of unprecedented crisis. This crisis is universally intended to transform humanity from its present differences-based, differently modeled, differently credo, differently colored, separate entities into a, com- a cooperative, interdependent, interharmonious whole, that will ultimately have a higher standard of living than the planet has at this time. Bucky said that their technologies exist at this moment that would allow us to have it, but that the powers that be are not gonna let them out until their existence is so threatened that they don't have a vested interest in hanging on to it. He says this is the history of humanity, but this crisis is gonna, it's gonna take the hair off the back of our necks. And it's not only gonna take the hair off the back of our necks, it's gonna join us again to each other. Now this may not be true. I come from a country that has more guns, more ammo, more people stocking stuff waiting for this collapse to happen. But Bucky said, this is not what's gonna happen. We're going, this is a crisis that is gonna bring humanity together on a level that has never been before just like that, that period of Victorian equilibrium brought the world together. And it really did. We're sitting here at this table talking in English. All right? We come from different heritages, different countries, different experiences. You know? We have an internet where you can go, and there it is, unless you live in China. All right? And even there, it's going to give way. There's a momentum. We are a part of that momentum. I don't believe, one of my sayings is, life is a miracle with a caveat it's a hell of a miracle. After the hell comes the miracle.
0: I and, like okay, Professor. I to just, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Um, my question concerns the Chinese communist government as it exists today. I, and in particular the fact that they have been accumulating all this paper wealth in the form of US Treasury bonds one day I believe that this was this is a strike of genius something visionary something uh, and it fits into the Marxian worldview and next day I think it was the most stupid, stupid thing ever any government ever, ever did yeah. And I still don't know. China is a really curious thing. I majored in East Asian Studies, all right? And, and uh, China is really curious because we, it's, there, there are all these consciousnesses, these bits and pieces of consciousnesses. And your point is really well taken because that is a huge overhang. And what happens with it, what's done with it, is going to be very, very critical. You asked me about my friend, the German. Okay, who, who you know. And I'm not gonna talk about him, but I'm gonna talk about a friend of his, friend all right? He met this person in, 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 in Boston in the 1970s, and he's Iranian, all right? And I watched their email exchange because they only recently came back together two or three years ago. His Iranian friend has lived in China since 1980. He speaks Mandarin, Cantonese, a few other dialects, and has achieved the level of a master calligrapher. All right? This is no small achievement for a foreigner. All right? And what? And he sent me some of these um, uh, interviews with him on, 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 on TV, in China. And he said something that stunned me. Because I watch it too. I, you know, it, what's going to happen? And he said something that was very, very insightful. He said, based on our own perception of how the Chinese have been, we think it can go this way, we think it can go that way. He says, I think we're going to find out that China, like the rest of us, is in transition. They don't know how they're going to turn out. And what is going to come out the other end is going to be as much surprise to the Chinese as it is to us. I was in China in 1976, very early on. I was 31 years old. I was one of the few Westerners that got in there at that time. I was there when the Red Guard was still in power. They were falling at the time. And I watched it because it was my major in college. And I had my druthers on who I wanted to come out. All right, I wanted Joe and Lie to come out. There was you had this power struggle between Joe and Mousie Tung. All right, and Mao Tung was that well, that's who he was, and Joe and Lie was rather the heart of the whole thing. All right, and we watched it, this tug of war, and both of them were dying. Okay, hanging on to power. Who was going to live? Who was going to be the last one at the helm? God. Joe and Lai died first my usual rush to judgment I gave up the goods you know I used to leave the TV when the 49ers were down by 20 with 3 minutes to go and Joe Montana was the quarterback and then I hear screams coming in front my God they won All right, but I would leave the room China did the same thing Joe and Lai dies I give up the ghost there's Mousy Tung he's got it his wife is going to come in. The Red Guard's going to take it over. It's over. Mao Zedong appoints an unknown Hua Go out of Hunan province who no one knew. And if you looked at him, he bore a remarkable resemblance to Mao Zedong. Same melon head, that same little dimple on his thing, you know. And no one knew him. And he was now the titular head of China with no power base. No power, except Mao Zedong. Three months later, Mao Zedong dies, boom! The army moves, takes out the Red Guard, takes out all the right-wing hardliners in the Communist Party, and Zhou Enlai sends to power. Deng Xiaoping, who was one of Zhou Enlai's people, comes back and ushers China into capitalism, and the world changes. So we can call it, we're going to be wrong, we're in a period of intense change, where the variables are so far beyond us. You know, we can, we have we all have our druthers, but that's all they are. And China is going to be a big player. I, what I don't you know, very few people know what happened in China in the last two weeks. This is extraordinary. What I wanted to ask you exactly that. It's extraordinary that happened last two weeks. in the last two weeks. All right, China is an opaque country. You can't see. All right, I mean, secrets is what China runs on. They don't tell anybody what's going on because knowledge truly is power. All right, what happened is a mayor of a town called Chongqing. All of a sudden. Uh, no, but before that happens. Something really bizarre happens. Something happens. News comes across that the mayor of Chongding, not a small city, because I don't think any cities in China are small, but it's nowhere as big as Shanghai, Beijing, whatever. It's at the base of Tibet on the other side of the hills from the Himalayas. All right, The police chief ran to the American embassy. Wow! what the hell did he go to the American embassy for? All right? And all of a sudden, there's this, you know, muffled stuff that's going on. And and then he sort of leaves the embassy, the American embassy, and he's, he sort of disappears. All right? That's the thing. Now, the, he was the police chief of Chongqing. The mayor of Chongqing, the next thing you know, um, goes to Beijing. This is big. What's convening is the National Party Congress. Not formally yet. All of the big bigwigs are meeting. They're all meeting there, okay? The big deal is going to be in the fall, in October, all right? But they're all there. And the next thing that happens is...